So today, as I said, we're talking about chapter 4, Prophets, True and False, and this is coming from Christ of the Prophets by O. Palmer Robertson. <clears throat> and so we'll start briefly with something that I think we've all heard of at least, which is the Watchtower magazine. Watchtower is the magazine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, founded in 1870, and one of the things, at least I would say in our communities for which the Watchtower is most famous, is their end times predictions. They started publication in 1870, and as early as 1878, they were already starting to make end times predictions. In 1878, they were making predictions that all of the nominal Christian churches of the world would fall out of favor and they would be swept away. And of course, in 1878, that did not take place. And so, because of the way that the material world worked out, <clears throat> this was explained away by the magazine as, well, there were spiritual changes that occurred, and you misinterpreted what we meant. In 1914, incidentally, the year that World War I began, there had already for years been predictions that all of the governments of the world would fall down and the government of Christ would rise up and we would be moving towards that prediction of revelation, so the Jehovah's Witnesses, so the Watchtower told us. That didn't happen. The world goes on. There are still governments standing. And once again, well, there were spiritual changes, though, that occurred. You can't see them but you must trust us in our predictions, you must believe. There's a couple of other predictions that happened, but perhaps the biggest one and the most significant was in 1975, when the Watchtower magazine for years, starting in the 1960s, had been making predictions that 1975 would represent the end of the sixth, sixth millennium since the creation of man. And it would only be fitting that this would welcome in the end times, that the beginning of the seventh millennium would start a year of jubilee, just as they had in the Old Testament, and that the year of jubilee would be brought in by the great battle of Armageddon. So, faithful as they were, the readership of the Watchtower magazine, Jehovah's Witnesses of the time, cashing in insurance policies, selling their homes, distributing their goods far and wide, as they should have, because this was the year of jubilee that was coming upon them. And 1975 came and went. And although they started to, you know, make excuses, this is not what we meant, you misinterpreted us, eventually within a couple of years of that, Watchtower actually published an apology to their readership for the impact that their predictions had made. And so what was the effect of this, of these, these predictions that didn't hold up? If you look at the statistics for the Watchtower magazine, it is the most widely circulated magazine in print today. 36 million copies in circulation. The only magazine that comes close is the AARP magazine, at, funnily enough, at 22 million copies. So a solid 14 million copies in circulation short. Something about these false predictions despite the fact, despite the history that they have fallen away, <clears throat> something is so compelling, something pulls us in, and this is exactly what O. Palmer Robertson wants to investigate. O. Palmer uh, Robertson says that 
false prophets are the, the greatest threat to the safety of God's people, which is an interesting claim because you would think the most obvious, the Sunday school answer, which is good for where we're at right now, is, well, sin is the biggest threat to the people of God. But if you investigate that claim for a little while, you'll notice that the prophecy was the means, according to Hebrews, by which the word of God was delivered to the people in the Old Testament. And we know when we think about the difference between general revelation and special revelation, where does our salvation come from? Special revelation only. And so when you have competing prophecies claiming to be the very word of God, claiming to be this special revelation that we so need, it's very easy to see how obfuscating and confounding and hiding and concealing and contradicting the truth in the form of false prophecy is the greatest threat to the safety of God's people. And he goes on to argue that given that there were both true and false prophets coexisting at the same time, it is absolutely vital that the people of God understand how to distinguish between these two. And so to that end, Robertson gives us five points throughout the chapter that he investigates, which is the source, the motivations, the character, the criteria for distinguishing them, and the consequences of the ministry of both true and false prophets. As for the ultimate source of true and false prophecy, he makes no bones about it. He starts with saying that true prophecy found its ultimate origin in a purposeful creation by the one and only God. That's a quote by Robertson, which is a very insightful and carries with it a lot of meaning because it's identifying not only that the one true God is the source of this prophecy, but he tells us a lot about this God even in uh, the statement alone. The creation is purposeful. God has a plan. He has a meaning. He has an ultimate control over everything that is going on. In other words, this is not a deistic God who creates and then is separated, but he has done this with purpose. And it establishes the creator-creation distinction. This is not a pantheistic God. God is everything. God is everywhere. We are all God. It is instead a God who is wholly separated. He is the creator God. And he spoke to his creation, the prophets, that is, specifically in dreams and in visions. These prophets are not speaking of their own accord. It is not their words that are coming forth. Although they are speaking in their own words, God has given them truth to say, and he has given them eyes and ears to see and to hear and to understand what truth and to convey that truth to his people. On the flip side, a discussion question, who was the first false prophet? Hear whispers, Satan. Yeah, the snake, the father of lies, Satan, the deceiver. <clears throat> so Satan, the liar, is the origin. He is the mouthpiece. He is the um, the beginning of this and the voice of the serpent is what carries forth through all of the false prophets. The voice saying, did God really say? Did God really say that? Or is it really not so bad? We'll see some examples of this. It's important for us to remember, though, that Satan is not an evil co-equal counterpart. Good and evil in 
the Christian worldview, which is the truth, are not are not co-equal. They're not competing. It's not a yin and yang in which these are equal things clashing back and forth, pushing back and and we'll see who wins in the end. <clears throat> Even as we see in the story of Job, the evil that Satan propagates is under the ultimate control of God and he uses it for his purposes and his purposes only. And yet, the confession tells us that even though God is so sovereign over all things, he's sovereign in, a such, in such a way that second causes, in other words, personal responsibility, is not taken away. <clears throat> According to Revelation, the serpent will be contradicting God until the end of the age, and so we can trust that the spirit that spoke through the false prophets, did God really say, is still speaking and relevant for us today. And we saw this in the false hope even that was given by those predictions in the watchtower. So we have to ask the question then, what causative relationship does God hold over false prophecy? And there's many false claims that Robertson covers that try to address this. False prophets show God has a dark side, people say. False prophets manifest God's own demonic activity. This is exactly the the blasphemy that we have to combat, saying that, like the yin and yang symbol, well, good and bad are co-equal, and there's a, every bad thing has a little bit of good in it, and every good thing has a little bit of bad in it, even God, even God. And that is not to be made in the image of God, but that is for us to make God in our image. That is to say, well, we know that we were created good originally, created innocent, and now we've been corrupted. And so God must be corrupted like we are. God has a dark side. God is overtaken by the sin that he uses. And the story of Job, once again, teaches us exactly the opposite. God uses all things for his glory. He cannot be contradicted. He cannot be changed. And another claim, they are true prophets speaking an untrue message. Once again, how could it be? How could God, the God who never lies, the God who is himself truth, he cannot speak a lie. And he gives his words to this, these words to his prophets. So it's not God who lies, but once again, the, the responsibility lies in that of the false prophet. One important verse that is useful for us to cover, lest we be caught off guard by it, is in 1 Kings 22 which says the prophet Micaiah, or which, in which the prophet Micaiah reported that a spirit from the heavenly council would, quote, go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all Ahab's prophets. This sounds an awfully lot like the evil originated with God, with his heavenly council. But the point of this verse is not to establish God as the origin of evil, which is very clearly uh, negated in the Old Testament, that God cannot sin and he is not the source of sin, but instead emphasizing how utterly in control God is over all of this. And it should actually be, instead of a discouragement to think, oh, well, even God is corrupted, but rather an encouragement for us to say, even when false prophets go out, and even when they successfully convince people, and even when people fall away, it is God who is in control, and God is good, and he is able to use this for his glory. God will not be defeated. 
So these prophets were already committed to lying, not forced to lie by, by God. What motivations do these prophets have? The true prophets are motivated in different ways, it seems, but all by one unifying thing. So Jeremiah tells us that God's word was like a fire in his bones, that he had to speak to extinguish the fire that was compelling him to speak. Isaiah cries out, recognizing the guilt of his tongue, is cleansed, and then when God says, whom shall I send, it's as if the compulsion to do so is irresistible. Here I am, send me. The prophets call attention to the calamity in the world brought about by sin. All of the destruction that sin causes, the prophets are so motivated by the truth because God has revealed to them in a special way, in a convincing way, just how sure the destruction will be if people go on in their sin, if Israel falls away and continues in that, and yet just how sure the glory will be if they fight that, if they listen to God, if they are obedient to him. In other words, if they have faith. False prophets, on the other hand, are very much motivated by personal gain, they want to be accepted by men. In Micah, a couple of verses which are relevant for us. Micah says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against them. So the favor of the people falling upon the prophets. If you do good for the prophets, they will proclaim good for you and encourage you. And if you do bad to the prophets, well, they will horrify you with their predictions. They will scare you back into their favor. Micah 2.11, again, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. And so we see here how the, the false prophets are taking advantage of something, even something good in the people that they're prophesying to. The hope for deliverance, the hope for peace, the hope for provision. One um, sort of truism that we hear nowadays when you go grocery shopping is, if you want to eat as healthy as you can, eat on the periphery of the store. And what they're talking about is at the center of the aisles, and I'm not judging, I'm, I eat my fill, fill of the, the processed food on the center aisles. But if you eat at the center of the aisles, it's processed food. And I heard one person say, which I thought was really insightful, that the food nowadays, part of the reason for some of the nutritional epidemics and things that we have in America is because we have hijacked what our body wants to eat, the flavors that are supposed to point us to say this food is nutritious. And we have hijacked what the body wants and divorced flavor from nutrition, where, you know, whenever we're eating, let's say, in a more whole, um, natural, you could say, manner, flavor and nutrition pair side by side. When we're eating highly processed food, which is delicious, by the way, the flavor and the nutrition are divorced from one another. This is exactly what the false prophets are doing. They're hijacking what the people want to hear. They're hijacking what we need to hear from our God, taking advantage of that and saying, I have for you peace. I have for you provision. I have for you protection and encouragement and promise and hope. 
but they've divorced this from the truth that, that God delivers us. And so without the patience to wait for God's plan, which is done in perfect timing, the false prophets hijack all of these hopes that we have that we should be receiving from God, and they take advantage of them. So here's a discussion question again for us. Do modern people seek the same prophets as the people of old? And I, that obviously, I, there's an answer that I'm expecting. So who? How? Yeah, that's a great point. I think also you'll be, um, briefly, you'll be interested to know that in the 1870s, the founder of the Watchtower believed that the way that Armageddon would take place was a massive uprising of the working class against the rich, which should echo familiar to us nowadays and is apparently a very appealing uh, way of achieving utopia. Yeah, yeah, Victor. Sad reality. The people going to church there, 
Yes, very much so. Tim. And the, we've changed it a little in our American Westminster Confession, but the original writing of the Westminster Confession was pretty bold to identify that. Any other thoughts? Very much so. And a very a prime example of don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? Is using the name Christian or the name of God for your advantage and for your benefit. It's not just saying God followed by some cor- curse or another, but using his name for your benefit. Let's look at the character of the false and true prophet and their work. The false prophet... Very straightforward. Robertson, again, makes no bones about it. The false prophet is a liar. His message is a lie. He lives a lie. He tells a lie. And he presumes to speak the mysteries of God and yet has not received these from God. The false prophet, whether he be using his own insight, his own judgment to come up with these things, or more likely feeling the room, seeing what the people want to hear finding out what will draw people to him and then assuming that, well, what the people want must be the truth and then speaking that back to them. And so in a way, we are called to worship the true God sometimes by praying and we will pray oftentimes the Psalms back to God. The false prophet, the false, that's for you, Tim, the false prophet is doing the same thing, worshiping the people seeing what the words and the whims and the desires of the people are, and then, in a sense, delivering those right back to them and worshiping the people rather than God himself. And the modern way that we identify this, and we, you know, people have a tendency, even when they don't claim to be prophets, even when they don't claim to be making messages for the church as a whole, we hear this phrase that we must be so careful with, God spoke to me, God told me to do this. God wants this to happen. And in some ways, we can speak that truthfully. We can all read our Bible. We can see what God wants. He wants his glory. We know these things generally. But if we try to apply these things in an overly specific manner, if we try to presume on the exact course of history that God wants us to take, in some ways, we can be falling into the same temptation and the same trap that the false prophets do on a much grander scale. The true prophet, on the other hand, very simply, he speaks for truth. He doesn't seek to appease the people. He seeks to appease God. He, again, speaks God's words back to him. He is faithful to all that God wants. And the 
the character and the message of the, the true prophet are that they are anchored in the solid, unchanging nature of God. Whereas the false prophet cannot be anchored in anything, but tries to anchor themselves in the whims of the people. And we all know, look at your whims, look at your emotions. It's a very common practice, for example, whenever we're raising up our children and they want to spend a lot of money on something, what do we tell them? Well, think about it for three months. Think about it. This is probably a practice that some of us, if we're not super good with money, have incorporated even to our lives as adults. Well, I'm gonna sit on this purchase for a couple months and see if it's what I really want. Why do we do that? It's because we recognize how fleeting our whims are. And furthermore, our whims are weak. They are not driving because they are not anchored. So one thing I find interesting and a little bit funny, many of you may know the name of Jordan Peterson, who goes around giving motivational talks. Um, he's good, he's very much not a Christian, very much, uh, if you listen to him in a religious manner, he's very much a works-based quote-unquote salvation. He's an intelligent man though, but he's been the source of great political controversy and so he goes and he speaks on university campuses and other places all around the world and he fills out the auditoriums. But in one interview, he was speaking and explaining how he has gotten around all of the trouble, especially on university campuses of more left-leaning people who would come and uh, picket or complain or riot even at his events. And he said it's, it's funny and it's actually very telling. The way that he gets around them is he has his talks at 8 a.m. Because as angry as those people are, they will not get out of bed in the morning to come complain about his talks. So our whims, as strong as our emotions can seem, our whims are so weak. In these cases, they can't even get them out of bed in the morning. But the truth of God is not only unchanging, it is strong, it is compelling, it is truth. Let's look at how we to distinguish between these prophets, the criteria for distinguishing between the two. And this is critical. We covered this in the introduction. We must be able to tell the difference between a true and a false prophet. False prophets first speak in the name of other gods. And so what if they make a prediction that's correct? One way that you can distinguish is that they have made this prediction, they have made this claim, and then they say, now come, I have made this prediction in the name of the Watchtower magazine. That didn't work out. But I have made this prediction in the name of, of Islam, in the name of Judaism. They tell us that they are not getting their truth from the truth teller, from the source of truth themselves. Regardless of the accuracy of the prophecies, we look even at the Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus. Moses was commanded to do miracles. The Pharaoh's magicians, for the first couple at least, were able to do those miracles right back. And um, depending on who you look at, they may have been tricks or sleight of hand, but the way that they read is very plainly is that they were doing these miracles right back to Moses. But what's interesting about them is that they were not able to reverse the curses that Moses was putting on them. Their miracles were still in service of the purpose of God. They were only able to do back what God had permitted them to do. And so they are able to do this powerful thing and yet they do it in the name not of God but of Pharaoh. We know they're false. The words of the true prophet 
are always fulfilled. And so not only must you be doing this prophecy in the name of the true God, but if you have one prophecy proven false, one thing not fulfilled, you are shown to be a false prophet. The true prophets were bold. They showed no doubt in their words. If you've been coming to evening services, Travis has been going through Jeremiah. And just a couple of Sundays ago, within the past month or two, we were in Jeremiah 28. And he spoke of these two prophets, Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, and Hananiah. And Hananiah uh, was going against Jeremiah because Jeremiah was speaking doom and gloom, so to speak, to Israel, warning them that things were only going to get worse before they got better. And Hananiah comes in and he says, no, Babylon only has two years left. They're going to fall away. You're going to be okay. Exactly what the people would want to hear. And Jeremiah, in the typical boldness of the Old Testament prophets, prophesied again from God and said, within the year, Hananiah will be dead. And he was. So many examples like this in the Old Testament of the boldness and the truth that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed against false prophets. <clears throat> now, it's important for us to remember that some of these prophecies, which are classically said have not been fulfilled, must be interpreted appropriately, so we have to interpret them in the right light. We have to know that some prophecies were of Christ, some prophecies were of end times, and the, the critics who go after us on this sort of give themselves away because they're simultaneously saying, well, the prophecies are true because they were harmonized with what happened after the fact, and then other prophets will come in and say, well, but the prophets, they never came true. So which is it? Did the prophets go back in, do some editing so they could be proven right? Or did the prophets not happen? I think the fact that these two critiques coexist uh, on a base level proves at least to some degree their unreliableness. Yes? Uh, yeah, Un undoubtedly, yes. Yeah, I think um, off the top of my head, I would say that most prophecies are like that with immediate impact, and yet they still have meaning for us today. So, for example, um, the way that Israel was ousted from their land is a curse, and it resulted in physical death, but the ousting of Israel from the promised land in the end times eschatological sense is even worse. Eternal condemnation. And so all of these prophecies that center around that truth, I would say, are in that sense true in both ways. Yeah. Is there something else you want to say about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as for how we handle that today, it's a great question. And we'll, we'll speak a little bit about this, and we'll have to move through, I think, the last section quickly. But just briefly, 
Um, the advantage that we have nowadays that Israel did not have in the Old Testament times is that Hebrew tells us that in previous, Hebrews tells us in previous times God spoke to us through his prophets, but now he speaks to us through his son. And so we know through that and through the, our understanding of the scripture as a whole, prophecies have ceased. And there's another mechanism which is prophetic in nature, but is not prophecy, which uh, we'll get to in just a second, I hope. But anyone making prophecies, new information from God, in other words, special revelation, is a false prophet nowadays. Let's talk quickly, great question, by the way. Let's talk quickly about the consequences of their ministry. And the power, I would say, of the prophetic office is manifested both by the impact of the true and the false prophet. You see how important it is. The false prophets will have consequences for the people. Ezekiel says, you dishearten the righteous with your lies when I had brought them no grief, and you encourage the wicked not to turn from their evil ways. So lies in this case create disordered results. The people hear lies, become accustomed to lies, and don't know how to distinguish the truth. And as for the false prophets, you can only tell so many lies before it changes you too. You tell a lie, well, you told a lie, but you tell six lies, you may be a liar. And so it impacts both the people and the false prophet themselves, and perhaps in a way that is unchangeable. That is not to say that anyone is beyond the salvation of God, but everyone is beyond their own will to salvation without the grace of God. So people pleasing is not benign. The false prophet themselves, uh, we are told in the Old Testament that God will make their past slippery, God will shame them, and as I said, the one who lies becomes a liar. You are impacted by your actions, and it impacts not just the world around you. It's not just a thing that you do without consequence, but it impacts your soul. True prophets, on the other hand, are nourishing to the people. And we are told that God's truth is like a hammer and a fire. And sometimes we need the hammer to break us out of our habits, to be struck by the word of God. And the fire itself is purifying. It will rid us of the chaff that is in our own souls, it will rid us of the sin, and it will, we are purified by God's word if he so desires, if he grants it. The true prophet gets to see the holiness of God and they will suffer, though, abuse, false accusations from the people. Because they are not people-pleasing, the people will not be pleased with them. And so they will have to deal with that, but when they put their head on their pillow at night, they have a clean conscience. They have told the truth. They have stood the test, so to speak, and they have communion with God. So briefly, because we have four minutes, I'll answer this last discussion question for us. What role in the church today shares similarities with the role of the prophet, and how are the roles similar, and how are they different? And of course, that role is something we're going to experience here shortly, which is the role of the preacher. The preacher is not a prophet, but participates in prophetic activity in a way, and don't like take that clip out of the recording and then run with it. Here's what I mean. Look at everything that we've talked about today and replace the word true prophet with true preacher. What is the ultimate source of true preaching? The word of God. Exactly. 
found in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. The prophet, sorry, the preacher, does not come up here and speak of his own accord. He speaks to us the word of God, not to appease us, but to teach us the truth for our sake, for our salvation, and for the glory of God. The false preacher, on the other hand, is making false claims. They are speaking according to the lies of the devil. What are the motivations of the preacher? They are compelled by the truth, and that is what drives them. The false preacher, on the other hand, personal gain, money, renown, big church, a jet, perhaps. What is the character? False preacher is a liar. He does not speak the truth. He is a lie. His message is a lie. He lives a lie. He tells a lie. The true prophet, again, is faithful to the word of God. How do we distinguish between the two? Well, in this case, we have the benefit that the Bereans had. It's very easy to distinguish between the two. Does the preacher preach the whole counsel of God or not? Does he preach to you from the Bible? When he preaches to you, can you search the scriptures and find the truth that is in it that he has preached to you? It may not be a popular message. It may strike at your heart and my heart, and it ought to. We all have sin in our hearts, but we are all called to hear the whole counsel of God. And what are the consequences of the ministry? As for false prophets, they will dis dishearten the righteous, and they will encourage the wicked to go on in what they do. And God will make their path slippery, and he will shame them, whether it be now or in the next life. The true prophet nourishes the people of God. He wields uh, the word of God like a sword, like a hammer, like a fire. People are nourished and purified. And the true prophet and the people of God, or sorry, preacher, who hear the word of God, um, will listen in awe at God's holiness, at his truth. They will hear with a clean conscience. The preacher preaches with a clean conscience, knowing he is speaking the unchanging truth. The people and the preacher will have communion with God. And God has promised that we will suffer abuse. We will suffer false accusations. We will not be popular. But God has promised that in his courts that we will receive the glory that God has promised for us, that we will follow in the footsteps of our older brother, Christ, that he is the first fruits and he has granted us all things good if, unlike the false prophets, we are patient to await God's timing and God's plan. Any final thoughts? We have probably 30 seconds if anyone has any. No. Let's pray.